This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone. We're on week seven of our course, our survey of missions here. And our lesson for tonight is called All Things to All Men. Tonight we're going to be talking about what I'm calling cross-cultural ministry. Cross-cultural ministry. So last week we talked about missionary life. So what we might call cross-cultural living. Somebody from a country, in our case, you know, the Western country, the U.S., goes to a different country. And there is some adjustment that has to take place. And we talked about things like culture shock and learning the language and, and some of the ins and outs of that. Today we want to talk about what effect does that have on our ministry. And we're going to start by looking at a passage of scripture here. So I'm going to be putting it up on the, on the, uh, the screen here. But if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to read a few verses 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Once again, I'm putting it up here on the screen, um, but if it's easier for you to look in your own Bible, let's look at this. This is kind of our theme verse for this lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 19. It says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak, became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. So I want to take a minute just for a little bit of discussion here. As you read this passage and you come to this phrase, all things to all men, what do you think Paul meant? What do you think he was talking about? He said, I'm all things to all men. I'm not looking for a right or wrong answer, just trying to get us thinking and talking about this a little bit. As you look at this, he says, I was a Jew to the Jews, I was a, a Gentile to the Gentiles, I had a law, I didn't have a law, I was weak, I was strong, I'm all things to all men. What do you suppose he's talking about here in this passage? Well, he certainly used his, his Jewish training uh, to minister to the Jews and preach to them. And he was right. rejected by them. We know that he'd be multiple language and he, he would speak mm-hmm. uh, to those people in their languages. Uh, he, he's speaking to them uh, even on Marcel, he's talking about you know, their own philosophers. He uses knowledge of, of um, you know, uh, history and current events to talk to them about those things and uh, just, you know, had nothing to do with being, you know, shifting theologically, but just, you know, being able to relate to whatever audience he was he was dealing with. Uh, that's, you know, I, I, I think that's a great, I think that's a great insight. I, I think the other side of it is, and I completely agree with what he said, is that he also didn't try to impose himself on them because he was a Jew. Mm-hmm. You know, he could, um, and he, he did have a lot of strength in a spiritual sense. He could have overwhelmed people or he 
tried to force them down a path that wasn't necessarily scripturally required, yep. but was comfortable, maybe, Okay. Um, that he could identify with, that he embraced because he just thought it was right, maybe, not necessarily because God said this is what is required. So I, I think yeah, you want to avoid it from that perspective, too. You want to be careful. All right. Anyone else have any anything to add? Yes, ma'am. Um, I think also it's that he um, did come across as being superior to other people in, in whatever way, but to relate to them on an even plane before God. All right. So there's, there's a few things in there. We'll be touching on some of these points. So, you know, Paul used these different connections with different people to relate to them. And he was trying to relate to them where they were as Jews, as Gentiles, as having law, as not having law. Um, going back uh, a few weeks, how many of you remember this little, this little uh, metric we had up, okay? Uh, kind of the, the, the package here. We got the message, the methods, and the means. So we said the message is the what, the methods is the way, means is the how. So let's think about this. When Paul was all things to all men, what aspect of this was he tweaking? The means. Did he change the message? No. No. Did he change his methods? In, in just yeah, different forums. He was still always trying to preach the gospel. That was his way: is is sharing the word of God, but. The things that changed as he was all things to all men, it was the means. These are the things that are incidental to the ministry. Where he did it, exactly how he presented the gospel. And so these are things he was changing. He would adapt his approach and his style, like Brother Scott was talking about. You know, he's talking to the Jews, he, he majors on certain things. When he's talking to the Greeks, he majors on certain things. Let me ask you this. Do you think he was hypocritical to do that? Okay. I think that we can look at the scripture and we see that as we've emphasized many times, the Bible is our rule. And so those, that part of what we're doing never changes. Those truths are non-negotiable. But the way that the ministry actually takes shape in different places may change. Things are going to look different in different contexts. That's not being hypocritical. It's not being sinful. Uh, but the missionary has to figure out how to interact with various elements in the community to which he's going. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Some of these elements that go into this idea of cross-cultural ministry. So your first point uh, in the outline here is the need for cross-cultural ministry. The need for cross-cultural ministry. Alright, and this is, this is really important. So what is, what is culture? You know, we're talking about this cultural adaptation. Here's the definition of culture. Set of customs, traditions, and values of a society or a community. And these are generally things that we're pretty conscious of. So if we talk about American culture, you know, there's certain times when we really kind of celebrate that. Things like the 4th of July or Thanksgiving. You know, we kind of trot out all our American culture. We wear flag shirts and you know, celebrate things like eating hot dogs and hamburgers and blowing up things and all those fun things that make us American, you know. Think about independence. And on Thanksgiving, we sit and we watch football. And these are all 
outward things that we think about. The food that we eat. Here's some different aspects of, of culture. The food that we eat. Uh, the clothing that we wear and styles. The type of houses we live in and our na- how our neighborhoods are set up. Etiquette. How we relate to one another. Shaking hands. Being friendly. You know, these are American culture things. And we're very conscious of that. We know these are things that make us distinctive as Americans. And people all around the world are like that. In Cambodia, they have certain holidays. Cambodian New Year. They're going to eat the most Cambodian foods they know how and put up decorations and all these things, play traditional, traditional games. And so, you know, culture is a, is a big thing to people. It's something they're very conscious of. And as we look around the world, you know, we reject the idea that there are many races in the world. There's one race, the human race. But there are many cultures, and that is what can oftentimes lead to issues. One race, but many cultures. And so wherever you go, there's different customs, different ways of life. And we really talked mostly about that last week as we were talking about just the personal journey of a missionary trying to adapt to the place that they live in. Now, traditionally, uh, missionaries were often accused of colonialism. Basically, the idea that they were trying to go over and make these natives kind of into, the, into their own image. And many of them really were guilty of this. It was all a package to them. Christianity and Western culture, it was all one thing. And so they go over and they wanted to become Christians, but they also wanted to become Americans or Englishmen and adopt all their same ways. And so they would see, you know, the cultural ways of these people and say, these are different, these are bad, they need to do things the way we do them. Now it's true that there are sinful aspects of culture. Every culture has them. Our culture has sinful aspects. Cambodian culture has sinful aspects. You know, drunkenness is very common. Um, you know, idol worship. You know, so there's some, there's some cultural things that are an integral part of their culture that are wrong. But on the other hand, there's some discernment between figuring out what's wrong and, and, and needs to be addressed with Scripture and what is just different. Different ways, different norms, different values that people have. And so, in order to make the message comprehensible, a missionary has to get this cross-cultural mindset. Say, I'm leaving my culture, going over here with this message. It's more than just the food. One of the big things that we run across in missions is this idea of worldview. All right, moving down to the next point, worldview. And here's our definition. This is a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. A particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. We talk about different worldviews even in America, and that's probably going to the, the philosophy of life. People have different philosophies. But when we're talking about cross-cultural ministry, many times it's a totally different conception of the world. A different idea about what's real and what's not real. What's good, what's evil. And the worldview is different from culture. Culture is the stuff we look at on the outside. This is what we like to do. This is how we like to dress. This is what we like to eat. And a worldview is something we have that we're not even conscious of most of the time. And those folks over there are not conscious of their worldview. It's just so deeply ingrained. What am I talking about? Here's a few examples of some different worldviews. Okay? In the West, Europe, North America, we have what I would call a naturalist, a worldview of naturalism. 
We believe the only things that are real are things that you can see, touch, and prove scientifically that they exist. That's naturalism. And that's our basic outlook, even for us who are Christians. That's just the, the worldview we have. In many places around the world, they have a supernatural worldview. Their world is made up of, of tons of invisible powers that they can't see, that they, just, they, they believe they're real. They're just as real to them as gravity is to us. Or as this table is to us. Their ancestors and the spirits. And so it's a different worldview. Another example. Our worldview is based around the individual. Everything is based around the individual realizing their potential. Being independent. And you go to other parts of the world and there's a big em emphasis on interdependency. Everybody is dependent on everyone else. In Cambodia, they have this idea that people have dubbed it the patron-client relationship. So someone who has power and money, it's their responsibility to kind of bring the poor, lower-class people into their sphere of power. They control them, they tell them what to do, but they also take care of them. And for the lower-class and poor people, they unquestionably do whatever the patron tells them to do, they provide him good service, and he takes care of their needs. And that's a very common idea. For Americans, that's a very foreign concept. But these are just some examples of worldviews. This is a big one here. Self-determination and karma. In America, we believe you can be anything you want to be. You just have to believe in yourself. You can control your own destiny. And in many parts of the world... That doesn't even end, that's not even a thought in their mind. What you are and what you're going to do is already determined by karma, by this law of what has already happened, what is happening in your life. There's no way to change it. So these are just some examples of different worldviews, and you, as you're ministering to people, you're trying to figure out where are they on this. We want to be conscious of our own worldview so we can be conscious of their worldview as well. Another thing that plays into where we're meeting people, we're thinking about you know, the cultural things, the worldview things, religion. All of these carry assumptions with them as well. So in, in much of Western society now, you're going to be running into atheism or humanism. You know, atheism, no one can base a worldview off of a negation. There is no God. What atheists really believe is human beings are the greatest good, usually that their own particular human being. But human being, so humanism, that's the atmosphere we live in. The greatest good is human beings, their happiness, their fulfillment. And there's assumptions that go along with that. Um, you also have your monotheistic religions. This is one of your blanks here, monotheistic religions. This would be traditional Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. They have their own set of assumptions. There's one God. There's... Usually that God is the creator. There's certain beliefs about good and evil. Um, you, you have people in, in pagan religions like Buddhism, like Hinduism. Uh, these people usually they have many gods, but usually some, some idea of, of good and evil as well. And then all the way to what we would call animism. And this is found all over the world. Um, even in places that have a, an established religion, you find it in folk religion where people pray to saints and angels. Um, they pray to ancestors. Right? This is all spiritual, trying to, 
trying to interact with the, the spiritual powers. Um, and then, of course, tribal religions, where it's just overtly trying to get in touch with the spirits. And these all carry their own set of assumptions. And so this is the atmosphere that a missionary is going into. Some people who have their own culture, they have their own worldview, they have their own religion, and a whole set of things here. And there's a really big danger here of something that's called syncretism. How many has ever heard the word syncretism before? All right, syncretism is the idea of combining or uniting different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. And so what happens is you've got, people got their own religion, they've got their own outlook, something new shows up, and it's like, well, we can just kind of make a mishmash here. Take a little bit here and a little bit there. And this, this happens all over the world. And the issue with this is it doesn't stop with just the means. This can change, actually change the methods. And it can actually change the message. And you end up with an entirely different gospel altogether. I've seen this in action in Cambodia. Cambodia is a Buddhist country. And so they have these certain assumptions, the worldviews that I was talking about, of karma, supernatural outlook, those are all there. And so the Catholic Church has come to Cambodia to spread Christianity of a sort. And so um, I had the opportunity to go and visit this campus they had way out in the country where the Catholics had built this big center, and they had built it on the model of the Buddhist temples in Cambodia. So here's the, the Catholic sanctuary. I'm sorry that's not clearer. But it's very, very similar to how the Buddhist sanctuaries are set up with the gold plating and the ornate roof and everything. It looks very nice, very attractive to Cambodians because it looks very familiar. Um, you go inside and they have these paintings on the wall in the same style that Cambodian Buddhist temples have. Pictures from the life of Buddha on the wall. And they did these pictures in the same, the same style. So I don't, I don't know if you can see this clear enough, but anyone want to guess what Bible story this is? There's Noah's Ark. So there's this big Cambodian-style ship. Um, you can see there's an, a Cambodian-style angel here appearing to somebody. Um, and then down here, can anyone see this part? All right, there's Calvary. Pilate, he meets Pilate. He's going to Calvary. Here's the tomb. And then, I don't know if you can see this, but here's some of the folks walking to Emmaus. And it's a Cambodian countryside of rice fields and villages. And so... Uh, they've taken all these Christian ideas and, you know, tried to put it into a Cambodian context, but it's not just the optics that they've changed. Um, as I was talking to these people, you know, Cambodians who want to become Catholics, they can still burn incense, they can still worship their ancestors as the saints, um, they still save themselves by good works, they still go to the temple to obtain merit, and uh, the Cambodian guy who was not a believer who was with me, who led me to this place, he was like, don't you guys do a big celebration at Cambodian New Year? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we do a big thing at New Year and at, um, at Christmas and at Pachumban, which Pachumban is a holiday in Cambodia where they believe the, the souls of their ancestors come from the underworld for two weeks, and they go to the temple and give offerings of food to them. And I was like, so what, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of 
celebration do you guys do at Pachumban? Because I was like, I can't, I can't see how you could possibly make that Christian. He's like, oh, well, you know, we, uh, we take it as a time when people can, can honor the, uh, the souls of the saints. And so it's taken a Cambodian pagan holiday and put some Christian terminology over it. And this is syncretism. They've taken Buddhism and added a little bit of Christianity to it, and you end up with something that's neither here nor there. Neither Buddhism nor Christianity. So this is syncretism. So the missionary in cross-cultural ministry is trying to avoid the colonialism where we're trying to come over and make people be Americans, make people be uh, Westerners. You know, they need to uh, dress the same way we do when we go to church. They need to sing the same songs as we do when we come to church. They need to keep their houses clean to an American standard. Uh, you know, they need to do this, this, that, and the other. And then on the other hand, we have the danger of syncretism, where if you're not careful in trying to make allowances for the culture, you lose the message. You lose the gospel. Here's the sanctuary inside that Catholic church. I don't know if you can see this, but uh, that's not Jesus. Jesus is there, but Buddha made it in there as well. And this is set up the exact same way that Buddhist temples are set up. You go up to the front, you burn your incense, and you pray in front of the altar. The only difference is there's not a huge image of Buddha right in the middle there. There's a crucifix. All right, so here, you know, this is, this is syncretism. So, approaching cross-cultural ministry. Which right. every American who wants to defend Catholicism is, oh, it's Christian, it's just like us, could hear what you just had to say. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it makes the transition very easily. It's very similar to Buddhism at its very core. You know, you save yourself, you can pray for ancestors, you can burn incense. I mean, it, it just, it lends itself very easily to that. And they came to Mexico, same, same story. Yep. Just incorporate your ancestor worship and all mm-hmm. the Indian, you know, worship and whatever style you do for your particular tribe and, and just blend it right in and it just uh, becomes a, just assimilates right in. Yeah. And, and to be fair, there's a lot of pressure to do that. If, if I let people burn incense to their ancestors, I probably have a lot more converts than I have now. Because that's one of the first questions that people ask me. And if they find out I'm not going to be able to burn incense to my ancestors anymore, a lot of people lose interest because that's important to them. And obviously the Holy Spirit has to convict them of that sin. The point is, you know, people are taking the, the path of least resistance and expediency. So... Uh, what, are, what are some more biblical ways to approach cross-cultural ministry? Uh, last week we talked about survival, um, you know, dealing with culture shock, language acquisition, etc. Another important thing for the missionary, I put it down here, is finding an identity. And this isn't just, you know, this trade idea, you've got to find yourself, your true self, whatever. The missionary's got to figure out a way that people will be able to relate to him on the mission field. In some places, people know what a pastor is or even know what a missionary is. That's great because he can slide right into that. In some places, people have no idea what a pastor is and no idea what a missionary is. 
And so it's finding out a way that you can make yourself comprehensible to people. Maybe it's as a teacher. Maybe it's as some sort of holy man. And, and you may have to make adaptations in your way of life. How you dress, how you interact with people, how you live. People who go to the Muslims, they stop eating pork. They stop eating bacon. Because they can't interact with the Muslim people as a holy person, as a teacher of religion, if they're doing something that the Muslims believe is, is absolutely unrighteous. Um, drinking is a huge thing in Cambodia, but they believe that alcohol is a sin. Drinking alcohol is a sin. I don't drink because I'm a Christian. But that gives me some credence with people. They're like, oh, you're like the monks. You don't drink because you're a teacher of religion. And so there's, there's different allowances that the, the missionary may have to make in his life to be able to have that identity where he can engage with people in a way that's legitimate, where they'll be able to, to understand what he's doing. Developing contacts. How do you find people that you're going to, to be witnessing to, be sharing the gospel to? In some places around the world, you can do door-to-door. Uh, like you would do here in the States. In fact, door-to-door in Cambodia is even easier than it is in the U.S. because most people's doors are open all day long. You don't even have to knock on the door. You just look in and call for someone to come and take the track. And so we can do, you know, track distribution. Some places people have to take some sort of secular job to be there and use their relationships that they have. And that's that's a huge thing. Um, when uh, When my wife and I were over in England... Uh, we were able to do a lot of letterboxing. You know, that's not a felony over there. So you can, uh, you know, just put tracks through people's mail slots in their door. Although a lot of dogs have gotten wise to that. You start to stick something through the door and it's like, boom. <laughs> so I've had more than one scare that way myself. Uh, but, but this is really important. In most places around the world, people don't just go to church. You know, it's, you're not going to be like, you know, uh, we're starting the First Baptist Church. And people are like, man, we were hoping a Bible-preaching church would come to this community. You get that in the States sometimes. You go and start, start a church somewhere, and people are like, man, we've been praying the Lord would send a, you know, a good, solid Bible-preaching church here. Uh, you don't run into that too much on the mission field. And so you've got to figure out a way to, in that culture, be able to reach out and, and make contacts. And, of course, the goal is sharing the gospel. And I want to dig into this a little bit because I think this is so important. This is where we see uh, Paul's example in sharing the gospel. And something we notice is that, that Paul liked to go from the known to the unknown. Try to figure out where people were at and then go from there. And so Paul preaching and teaching in the synagogues to the unsaved Jews was drastically different than him preaching and teaching to, to Gentiles that he'd meet out in these villages out in Asia Minor. And so among the Jews, Paul began with the Scripture. He used the Bible because they accepted the Bible. They knew the Bible. And so he would start with Israel's history, and he would use the prophecy of the Old Testament. I've got a few references here if you want to write these down and, and check them later. But a few examples of where Paul did this. Acts 13, 14 through 41 is one instance. Acts 17, 1 through 3. Um, Acts 28, 23. All right, so these are just a few examples. If you want to look at them, he, he, just, he just dives right in because they have a lot of prior knowledge. Uh, 
when Paul's among the Gentiles, he begins with the Creator and the creation. And we've got some, he talks about general revelation, the things that everybody can know about God. That there's some, there's some great being who created this world and is, is sustaining us day by day. Some passages where we see this is Acts 14, 15 through 17, and Acts 17, 22 through 31, which is that address on Mars Hill. And he's talking about, you know, their philosophers, their poets, you know, a God who made the world, who, who, who sustains us. And so part of the missionary's task is figuring out where people are generally and tailoring his presentation of truth to their level of knowledge. And so the way we're used to presenting the gospel here in the U.S. is based on the idea that most people probably have heard of God, they know the story of Jesus Christ, they have an idea of sin, an idea of heaven and hell. We assume all those things without even realizing it, right? When we talk to people. And so the missionary, he's got to get in there and figure out where are people at and, and where do we need to start. Something that's been really helpful um, to to us in our ministry in Cambodia, I know to many people, is this approach that many people call creation to Christ. There's an actual course called Firm Foundations that was developed to teach this. It's a systematic, chronological way to teach the foundational truths of the gospel. And so basically, it's just lessons starting from before creation, who is God, all the way through the biblical narrative trying to help people understand these basic things, like who or what is God. This is where we got to start with people in Cambodia. They have a word for God, prayer. It could mean anything. Your parents could be God. Buddha is God. The king is called God. The monks are called God. That same word. And so when you just go in there and you start throwing this word around, people have no idea what you're talking about. And so you got to start from, you know, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. What sort of God are we talking about here? What is man? Is he a highly advanced animal? Is he just another step in, in the wheel of, of reincarnation? What is sin? Man, this is a huge one for us in Cambodia. Because it's so tied in with the idea of karma. And so when you say, uh, hey, are you, you know... The Bible says you're a sinner. Would you agree that you're a sinner? People go, oh yeah, I have sin. I have sin. But what they mean is I have bad karma. Bad things have happened to me in my life. Which means that at some point in this life or a, pre or a life before this, I must have done something bad, so I have sin. They're not admitting that they have done things against the God who created them. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with these things, you know, line by line, precept by precept. Who was Jesus Christ and what did he do? You know, we take it for granted. Everyone knows the story of Jesus. Well, everyone doesn't. I tell you what, one of my favorite things in sharing the gospel in Cambodia is getting to the resurrection and so many people who are honestly surprised to hear that Jesus rose from the dead. And we're so used to that. We're so used to it. It doesn't even register. And I mean, But I mean, that's a major twist. <laughs> Jesus was a great teacher. He did all these miracles. He died a death, an unjust death, and then he rose from the dead. They don't see that coming. That's amazing. We serve a living Savior. And so, acquainting people with 
who Jesus was. Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a God among gods? Who is he? And of course, where we want to get to, what must I do to be saved? And so often we want to just jump straight to this step without stopping to see whether these foundational truths are understood. And without that, in a lot of places, people are more than happy to accept Jesus among their other beliefs. Add him to the shelf, like this Catholic church here. You know, we can have Buddha and Jesus, both good teachers. We like their rules. We want to respect them both. And, and if somebody comes to that conclusion, they've totally missed the gospel. And so the missionary is trying to figure out a way to present this in a way, like we said before, to bring people to a point where they can intelligently either receive or reject Jesus Christ. And that's the same thing we're doing here in the States. We want to bring people to that point. But living in a society with a, cult, with a Christian background, we can generally start a lot further down the road. And so the missionary has to figure out if he's in a pagan place, an animistic place, a Muslim place, or traditionally Christian place, where does he have to start to get to this place, what must I do to be saved, where people can clearly understand what they are either receiving or rejecting. So what about the results of evangelism? Well, this might be a shocker, but... Some people do not believe, even on the mission field. Some people just do not believe. And, and uh, that can be really disappointing. You spend weeks and weeks with people. This picture here, this is an old woman by the name of Sok Jun. And she was very interested when we began to talk to her about the gospel. And so we, would go, we went back and visited her numerous times because, as you can imagine, teaching creation to Christ is hard to do in one 30-minute session. And so we would go back and, and talk about the creation and the fall and the law of God and who Jesus Christ was. And she was tracking, you know, all along. I believe she really understood the gospel. And yet at the very end, she said, I've already committed myself to Buddha. Because there's a custom in Cambodia, many people when they get older, they'll do what's called Som Sal they will dedicate themselves to keeping even more laws in Buddhism as a way to try to wash away their bad karma. And so she said, I've already committed myself to Buddha. I cannot believe. She's not the only older person that we've had like that who has had genuine interest and yet come to the end and they count the cost and they say, you know what, I can't do it. And that can be really, really disappointing. But of course, some people do believe. And so, as a, as a missionary, we're trying to, to kind of bring people along this progression from not knowing anything about Christ and introducing the gospel, and we want them to, to come to that point of believing in Jesus Christ, and then work with them to baptize them, to disciple them, and to get them into church membership, just like we would do with someone here in the States. Um, one of the things I've learned about discipleship, being on the mission field, is that... Uh, generally it takes a, a lot of time, just spending a lot of time with people. We want to teach them those basic truths about Christianity, but especially, at least in, in Asian cultures, people just want to spend a lot of time with you. It's all new to them. They want to watch you. They want to see what you're about. They want to try to learn from you. And so discipling people, bringing them along, getting them to be 
a part of the church. Which brings us to church planting. I apologize. I know I have a lot of material tonight, and this is kind of a, a whirlwind here. But the missionary is coming into the country with this in mind, right? And so trying to sort through all the different things that he's seeing to figure out a way to make this message comprehensible without a lot of cultural baggage, his own baggage, but also not pulling their cultural baggage in there too. We're trying to avoid those two extremes. Because we talked about this a few weeks ago. We're looking for churches, right, that are self-propagating, self-governing, self-supporting. All right? They can plant more churches from their own church. They know the gospel well enough to be able to go and plant other churches. They, they, can, they have their own leadership, national leadership, that continue, can continue to replicate themselves. And they can support themselves. So cross-cultural ministry, we're trying to go from a church in America that is reaching out to its own culture, and this bridge that's going over and trying to plant a church that will be able to function in its own culture. Not a clone of the American church, but a church that is based on that core of the gospel and that is able to do all these things in its own culture. And, and I, I, I really love this. If you can turn to Acts 2.42, there's a lot of confusion when you come to a, a, a topic like church planting, like what does it mean to, to have a church or to be a church? And we, we, we once again have so much cultural baggage sometimes that goes along with this. But when you go back to the New Testament, it's quite simple. All right? What are the essential elements of a New Testament church? All right? So I'm going to read the verse, and I want you guys to chime in. What are some elements of a, a, a church that we see in this verse? Acts 2.42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. So anyone want to shout something out? Something that this church was doing, an element of this first church from Acts 2.42. Apostles' doctrine. Okay. The apostles' doctrine. They were teaching the truth. They were teaching the gospel. They were teaching the Bible. The apostles' doctrine. And so, that is an essential element of a New Testament church. Now, you may wonder, what's with the picture of the rickety house? Alright, this is a typical Cambodian house here. I mean, run-of-the-mill. Okay, you see thousands of these when you drive around Cambodia. And you'll notice that it's up on pillars. Can everyone see that? All right, so you've got your, your concrete pillars here, and the house is built up high. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's hot. Notice where everyone's hanging out? Under the house where there's shade. At nighttime, that's where you tie up the cows, under the house. Um, and it's just a lot cooler to be up high like that. But when I'm, I'm talking to Cambodians about this, I say, look, a house is built on pillars. And so in Acts 2.42, we have four pillars. All right? This house has more than four pillars, which is probably good. But uh, the New Testament church, there's four essentials here. So apostles' doctrine is one. Anyone see anything else? Fellowship. I mean, has COVID-19 thought of something about fellowship? <laughs> it's important. Believers getting together to encourage one another and just to be with one another. That's an essential part of a New Testament church. What else? Teaching 
the breaking of bread. Um, I believe this is referring to keeping the ordinances. They were breaking the bread. They were doing the Lord's Supper with one another to remember the Lord's death until He comes. And so that's an essential uh, part of a New Testament church. Alright? One more thing. One more pillar of this house. Prayer. Alright? They continued in prayers. And so a New Testament church should be people that are praying for one another and with one another. Now, those are your essentials. Do you see a building? No. <laughs> Do you see a bus? No. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, and I'm not denigrating any of those things. Those are luxuries for a church to be able to have a dedicated meeting place, vehicles to pick people up, different ministries. But sometimes we see all those things, we think this has to be a church. But here's what we see. This is what a church really needs. All it really needs is the Bible, these four things, the power of the Holy Spirit to be a church and to go forward. And so as a missionary, this is our goal, to get a group of believers together who are, who are doing these things in the power of the Spirit. And that's, that's church planting in a nutshell. And of course, the, the missionary eventually may find himself doing things like training leadership, maybe down the road supervising a building program. Because you don't have to have a building to have a church, but it sure is nice. Um, and, and, you know, things along that line. Uh, you know, many missionary, missionaries find themselves teaching a Bible institute or something along those lines to help, you know, develop the believers and develop leadership uh, in the church there. And eventually, the goal is to transfer the responsibility over to the national folks. That's the cross-cultural part. We're, 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 we're leaving a church in one country. We're going over to this other country. We're figuring out a way to make it comprehensible in their culture with the goal that eventually this church will be what we call an indigenous church. It fits in in that culture um, in every way that it can while being faithful to the message and the methods that God has given us to do. I didn't get this uh, quote onto the handout, but you might want to write it down. Just kind of a summary of what we're trying to get at today. All right, the gospel is universal. Would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. There's, there's, there's one gospel. Paul talked about that. It's for the Jew, the Greek, barbarian, Scythian, doesn't matter. There's one gospel for everybody. The gospel is universal. The goal of cross-cultural ministry is to keep it that way. And so our goal, whether we're sharing the gospel here in America or sharing the gospel in another country, is to figure out how we can get across the, the gospel, introduce people to Jesus Christ without clouding it up with all the things, church culture, American culture, you know, pop culture, Cambodian culture, all these things that want to come in and muddy the waters. We're trying to figure out a way to keep that pure while, while being able to adapt and integrate with the place that we're going to. So, cross-cultural ministry. All things to all men. So I believe we have a, a biblical precedent for this. This is what Paul was doing, and this is what we're doing today. Any questions or comments? Ma'am. Just a comment. My sister-in-law was 
was raised on the mission field. Yeah. In Papua New Guinea. Wow. And uh, we're talking about the the customs and the culture, and I think this is where the religion and the culture kind of meet. They, when they were in the village, the tribal village where they settled and, and worked, they noticed that all the homes had lovely flower beds around their houses. And so they wanted to fit in, and they planted their flower beds, and then later found out that that's the way they worshiped their ancestors. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, we uh, knew a family who, they came to Cambodia, and, and they used to, you know, they had, they liked the smell of incense. So when they were in the States, they used to burn incense in their house just, you know, as an aromatic, like, like burning a candle or something. And so they came over to Cambodia, and they've got little incense burners, and they're burning incense in their house in Cambodia. One of the veteran missionaries went over, he's like, you guys are going to have to stop this. <laughs> You know, this just, there's nothing wrong with burning incense, but here, that's a problem. And so, yeah, there's examples like that in many places, and we all make mistakes and have to stick our foot in our mouth or pull out our flower beds, you know. Right. Um, so it's just trying to figure out where are folks, how can we show them the gospel with the least amount of confusion and the least amount of interference from all these other things. When you uh, put these four categories under religion on the first page, um, would you say that's pretty much an all-inclusive list that everything in the world would fall under those four? Um, I think so. Um, they're not, you know, perfect categories. They bleed into one another a little bit. But I, I think, by and large, just about anything, because there are other random religions, you know, Sikhism and Jainism and different things that are out there that would generally fall into these. Either, either people have rejected God entirely and just worship mankind as it is, or they believe in one God, which there's just basically Judaism, Islam, and Christianity and that. And then pagan religions, I mean, as much as they're different, they're all the same. You know, you've got however many gods and, and, uh, and then, yeah, animism, I mean, that's everywhere. In fact, that underlies just about any non-Christian. For people that aren't born again, almost everybody is dabbling in animism in one way or another. Whether it's the humanists dabbling in New Age stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, even cultural Christians, Muslims, Jews, they have all kinds of, you know, praying to the santos, you know, the, the saints and angels and holy people and all these sorts of things, you know, the evil eye, all these beliefs. And so that's, that's really underlying. And then when you get back into the real boonies with the tribal people, they don't often don't even have any organized religion. It's just straight out spirit worship. I was looking at um, Craigslist today in the free section. Somebody was giving away. It said uh, free spiritual books or something like that. That's like... Let me just click through and see what this is. And it was, uh, uh, the books were uh, dealing with Wicca. Mm -hmm. They were giving away um, multiple little Buddha statues and uh, had a little thing to burn incense in. So, I mean, I don't know what all they, I mean, it sounds like they were into all kinds of stuff. But uh, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, where does this person, uh, clearly not monotheistic, but outside mm -hmm. of that, what are, what are these? And I was trying to, categorize them. 
to be honest. I guess it's animism. You know, it's animism, but uh, like any religion, basically, in the West is mixed with humanism as well. Um, you know, all this new age, because, you know, we, we're spiritual. People are have spiritual natures, and so if we don't know the truth and we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're going to look for something. I, I, I'm guessing that just about everybody is looking for some sort of spiritual experience. And so for people who have rejected the idea of God and embraced humanism, they're still looking for that somewhere. And for a lot of people, I think they find the answer in things like Wicca. You know, you see Buddha images all over the place. Those people don't know anything about Buddha. They don't worship Buddha. It just makes them feel kind of spiritual to burn incense, you know. I, 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 that's my theory. I don't know if I could defend it. You asked me about these four categories. I was like, well, how sure really am I about these four categories? But, but I, I think that, that most everything could fit in there. And there's an underlay of animism. With anybody who doesn't know the Lord, I think that that's there somewhere. They're, where they're looking for, they want to be able to contact their departed loved ones, spiritual powers, somehow they're looking for that. There's a whole lot of people who claim to believe in Jesus that uh, also have this, I, I remember a few years ago, the big craze was study of angels and all mm -hmm. this. Oh, you know, I had experience with an angel and Hebrews 13 too and all this. But we saw how John, John was addressed very directly in the book of Revelation, you know, hey, don't mm -hmm. worship me. Yeah. Don't focus on me. I'm not the, yep. I'm not the one. You know, worthy is Lamb. You know, it's, I mean, it's, you, we talk about the Catholics being ones to, to uh, mm -hmm. what is the word, use syncretism. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <coughs> man, I, I've been, I've been door to door, and you go in somebody's house, and you see, you know, and you see Jesus there. Oh, yes, I love Jesus. And, uh, you know, you thought, we saw, saw the, you know, stickers on the window, you know, pray and all this other stuff. I thought, well, hey, we might be, you know, going to somebody like faith. You let them talk a little bit, you're like, sister, you don't, you don't know what you believe. Mm -hmm. You believe a little bit of everything. Yeah. And, and when you do that, you don't believe in anything. I mean, it's Christ alone or, it's, or not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, the category under animism that's folk religion. That's what we're talking about, is people who formally embrace some religion, but they're mixing it with all kind of different spiritualistic type of beliefs. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.